Today I wish to contrast the many priests that there were in the Old Testament time to the fact that in the New Testament there is only one sacrificial priest, Christ Jesus the Lord, and that the scripture is emphatic that he has an unchangeable, that is an untransferable priesthood, that there is no sacrificial priesthood in the New Testament and that we only have Christ Jesus as the one high priest that we look to as the author and finisher of our faith. Now, it is difficult to deal with this because I purportedly was a priest for 22 years and uh, how could I be a priest if there's no priesthood in the New Testament? This is what we've got to deal with. So, it's a, a difficult topic and I want to say that I am sharing this contrast with empathy and feeling because I know the sincerity of young men going into the priesthood. I remember when I was 18 and a half going in to start my training, eight years of training for the priesthood, how sincere these young men were and how they wanted to dedicate their lives to God, Christ and the church so that they could serve people in the priesthood and help people and how enthusiastic they were. I remember the 21 young men that I entered with uh, for the first year of uh, novitiate and then for the studies. I remember the sincerity of that, those men. And they were utterly sincere and devout in what they wanted to do. And I know that that's often the case. So, it's with empathy that I wish to deal with this difficult subject, the mystique or uh, the glory that is the, uh, purported to be in the Catholic priesthood and uh, what has been shown today to be the face of the Catholic priesthood. It is a difficult topic, but I think we have to deal with it. The contrast is remarkable because in the Old Testament we know that there were many priests and really emphatically the New Testament tells us that this is not the way and they give the contrast. For example, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 and 24 gives you this contrast. And there were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So, this man, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The men of the Old Testament needed people to take their place because they died. And for the priesthood to continue, somebody else had to come and to take their position to offer sacrifices. But this man has an unchangeable priesthood. It's unchangeable. A parabatos is the exact word in the Greek, means untransferable, not given to anybody else. So, 
it cannot be handed on to anybody else because it's uniquely his and his alone. So this is expressed and the clarity that he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. This one sacrificial priest can save to the uttermost. So the text goes on and it tells us that he needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the people's. For he did once he did this once when he offered up himself. He, he didn't need to offer up sacrifices for himself like they did in the Old Testament because he was absolutely perfect. And he didn't continually offer up sacrifice. He offered it once. So this is an emphatic contrast that the scripture makes that the priesthood of Christ saves to the uttermost and that it is not transferable and that there is not daily sacrifice. There was one sacrifice, once offered. So, a remarkably clear contrast given on the pages of Scripture. So, the, the thing is dramatized, as it were, in the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. For Because when he dies, we're told... Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. The, the veil that separated the, the holy place from the, 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 the most holy, where the, um, the high priest in Judaism went once a year, that was torn in two from top to bottom, showing, as it were, in symbolic way, what actual fact happened. There was the end of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament because Christ Jesus had said it is finished. His sacrifice was finished. So, the scripture says his qualifications in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 6. We have such a high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. Who qualifies? The, 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 the qualifications are remarkable. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heaven. There's only one that qualifies. And that is Christ Jesus, the one high priest, who said on the cross, tetelestai, the actual words in Greek, it is finished. The sacrifice was legally, utterly complete. And final, it is finished because all sacrifices had reached their perfect fulfillment in the one Lamb of God who gave his life for his own. So, this is the, the, um, the fact of where we are. Now, it's difficult, but we've got to deal with it. Where is the glory of the Catholic priesthood? We're going to see later on how the Catholic Church in its official teaching speaks about the glory of the priesthood. But it is not glorious in the face of what's been happening. Just coming here, I was on the plane from Syracuse to 
Rome, upstate New York, and I was talking to a Catholic and he brought up the scandals in Boston and other parts of the Catholic world and how he didn't want to go back to the Catholic Church because he said, how can I, you know, look to a priest to give me absolution and to do the, the sacraments for me if so many of them are immoral and pedophiles. So uh, this was a Catholic talking to me on the airplane and it is quite difficult because these things have been made public. Uh, they go right through Catholic history and you'll find at different times and centuries reference to them. But in modern times it has become as it were, front page headlines and there have been really disclosures right across the world and it was particularly the Boston Globe newspaper that here in the United States that really began to expose the wickedness of how life is lived in the Catholic priesthood. Even the Attorney General of Massachusetts made an official declaration and uh, it can be found on the internet where the Attorney General, from a legal point of view, made a declaration regarding the Catholic priesthood. This is the civil authority speaking about the dangers of the Catholic priesthood. I'd like to quote from the Attorney, Attorney General of Massachusetts uh, where on July the 23rd, 2003, he made the following statement. This came from his office. The Attorney General's investigation revealed that the magnitude of the Archdiocese's history of clergy abuse of children is staggering. Records uh, produced by the Archdiocese reveal complaints regarding at least 789 victims. When information from other sources is considered, the number of alleged victims who have disclosed their abuse likely exceeds 1,000. The magnitude of the Archdiocese's history of clergy abuse is equally shocking if evaluated in terms of the number of priests and other archdiocesan workers alleged to have sexually abused children since 1940. The investigation revealed allegations of sexual abuse of children uh, made against at least made by at least 237 priests and 13 archdiocesan workers. Of these 250 priests and other diocesan workers, 202 allegedly abused children between 1940 and 1984, and the other 48 allegedly abusing children during Cardinal Law's tenure as Archbishop. Uh, I, I stumbled a little bit there because it's difficult in reading some of these facts. And given from a civil authority of the Attorney General in Massachusetts, um, July the 23rd, you can check that out on the internet, the exact words of the Attorney 
General in Massachusetts. It's quite similar from the Dallas Morning Star, for example, quoting in August 2003, quotation from the Dallas newspaper, roughly two-thirds of top U.S. cardinal Catholic leaders have allowed priests accused of sexual abuse to keep working, a systematic practice that spans decades and continues today. A three-month Dallas Morning News review shows the study, the first of its kind, looked at the records of top leaders of the nation's 158 mainstream uh, Roman Catholic dioceses, including acting administrators in cases where the top post was vacant. Protected priests were accused of sexually abusing minors, primarily adolescent boys, also younger ones, and a sizable number of girls of various ages. The newspaper study also covered behavior that indicated a sexual attraction to minors, such as viewing child pornography or in one case trading sexually charged emails with someone a priest believed was a minor. That's a quotation from the Dallas uh, Morning News um, from August in the year 2000. We find similar things on Catholic web pages where uh, victims' pictures are often posted and it's, it's really it's really graphic and it's the Catholic web pages that uh, show a lot of what has been happening where Catholics are horrified and they will give you statistics and figures right across the United States and of course other parts of the world. You will find right across the world where there has been abuses of um, minors. It is the abuse of uh, teenagers, boys and girls, and uh, this is all besides uh, fornication and adultery. So it's from Canada to Australia, from South Africa to Hong Kong, across Europe, Ireland and Poland, that sex abuse has been exposed. And it is very, very difficult. And I say it with empathy because I lived 22 years as a priest. And all my association was with priests. And I lived, you know, in that whole environment as a Catholic for 48 years. So the major part of my life was spent in that environment. And so I know the sincerity and the the difficulties of what it's like. And I know that it is a very uh, dangerous type of life situation to be in. And... uh, that the Catholic Church has done what the morning, uh, Dallas Morning uh, News said, it has covered up. It has moved priests from parish to parish, from diocese to diocese, so that they continued to abuse in other places. And this has gone on for years and years. And this has been the policy of the Catholic Church, to keep utter secrecy. This has been disclosed and has become... Uh, known, and you'll find this, of course, on the internet and documented that the Vatican has, since 1962, declared that the matter is to be utterly secret. 
and this was under Pope John the Twenty Third. I quote from the the different sources we have on this matter. An order written in Latin was sent from the Vatican in 1962 and it was marked with the seal of Pope John XXIII. The statement uh, says, matters should be pursued in the most secretive way. They are to be restrained by, restrained by perpetual silence. And anyone pertaining to a tribunal in any way is to observe the strictest secrecy which is common regarding a secret of the Holy Office under penalty of excommunication. So an archbishop or a bishop could be excommunicated, put out of the Catholic Church, if they broke secrecy. But the secrets have come out, and the fact that they have been obliged to secrecy has been come out. And it's, it's very painful. When I was in Plattsburgh, uh, upstate New York uh, talking about three years ago um, in a motel, Comfort Inn, some Catholics came to me and they were in great pain about this very matter and wanting to know what they should do because the embarrassment they had and the ways they knew even of local priests who were involved in this thing and it's similar right across the United States where you can find individual Catholic families where somebody was abused and it is quite painful uh, to, to find these things and I think it's got to be dealt with because the, the, um, the matter is quite serious and it involves young men and women who are American citizens and they're under danger from a particular uh, set of men in the Catholic clergy. And therefore it is a, a national um, danger and it has got to be dealt with in a civil point of view like the state of Massachusetts has put out a warning. So it's a, it's a very serious matter because we're talking about the you know, the well-being and the moral integrity of uh, citizens that are in danger by the abuse that has gone on in the Catholic Church and in the priesthood. So we have to deal with that. But before we get to that, I want to deal with the official Catholic teaching on the glory of the priesthood. Because this is what's put into men's minds and what was put into my mind why I wanted to become a priest was the glory of the priesthood. Vatican II documents emphasize the power, the glory and the mystique of the priesthood. I want to quote from Vatican Council II. The Vatican Council began in 1962 and its decree on uh, the priesthood. Quotation from Vatican II documents. First, then, priests are to make it their most cherished object to make clear to the people the excellence and necessity of the priesthood. They do this by their preaching and by their personal witness of a life that shows clearly a spirit of service and genuine paschal joy. 
then they are to spare no trouble or inconvenience in helping both youths and older men to whom they prudently consider suitable for so great a ministry to prepare themselves properly so that they can be called at some time by the bishops. However, it is emphatically not to be expected that the voice of the Lord calling some to the future priest's ears in some extraordinary way. Therefore, organizations and promotion of vocations, whether diocesan or national, are recommended highly in sermons, in catechetical instruction, in periodicals. The needs of the church, both local and universal, are to be made known clearly. The meaning and the excellence of the priesthood is to be highlighted. Presbyterium Ordinance, that's the name of the document, it was number 63 of Vatican II documents. The meaning and the excellence of the priesthood is to be highlighted. That is what is put before the Catholic youth. And what is the meaning of the priesthood for the Catholic? It is declared emphatically in the same Vatican II documents, quoting now from the same 63, document 63, section 7, quotation, all priests and bishops share one identical priesthood and ministry of Christ. That they say the priest is not a representative of Christ. He has one identical priesthood with Christ. It's not a copy of or representation of. It's an identical. He is another Christ. So that's what's put into the mind of young Catholic boys. You can have an identical priesthood. You can be another Christ with the power and authority of Christ. So this is the power and glory that is spoken of in official Catholic teaching. In Dominice Cene, number 77 of the Vatican II documents, they say the following quotation, The priest offers the holy sacrifice in persona Christi, in persona means in specific sacramental identification with the eternal high priest. Again, an identity with Christ. We used to call it in olden days, Alter Christus, another Christ. You have an identity with the priesthood of Christ. The Catechism of the Catholic Church declares the same thing. It says in paragraph 1548, quotation, Now the minister, by reason of the sacerdotal consecration which he has received, is truly made like the high priest and possesses the authority to act in the power and place of Christ. Now, what youths would not long to have the power and place of Christ? So that's what's drilled into the mind of Catholic youths, that you can have the power 
and the place and the authority of Christ as a priest. Not simply to represent him, but to have an identical sacramental priesthood that is the same. So, this is what is put into Catholic minds, and it is uh, highly compelling, and it is um, a, a, a role that is put before them that if a young man is a sincere, devout Catholic, would feel inclined, yes, I want to serve people with an identical priesthood. Uh, they say the role of priests, and it is spelled out clearly what they do. In the document, Dominice Cheney, that we just quoted, uh, on page 807 of the Flannery edition of Vatican II documents, by baptisms, priests introduce men into the people of God. By the sacrament of penance, they reconcile sinners with God and the church. By the anointing of the sick, they relieve those who are ill. And by, and especially by the celebration of the Mass, they offer Christ's sacrifice sacramentally. So this is their role. They do all of these things in the identical priesthood of Christ. And this is what is put before the Catholic youth. The appeal that they could share the priesthood of Christ. So that you can say, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And people can go with their way with their sins absolved. So you can take a baby and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and hold up a Christian baby that has been reborn by the sacrament of baptism. And you can offer Christ's sacrifice for the living and the dead. And this is the power that they say their priests have. And it is a very glorified picture that is put before the Catholic youth. I just would to God that some of the Catholic youth would look in their Catholic Bible and see what we saw earlier on, that there were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continued forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Amen. That there's only one priesthood in the New Testament, and only one qualified, holy, harmless, undefiled, Amen. separate from sinners. There's no more offering for sin. When he had by himself purged their sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, one sacrifice once offered. And this is explicit that the New Testament seven times talk about that one sacrifice that it was once offered. It's not that it's said once, it's said seven times to, so that the believer knows and it has been re-emphasize that it was once offered. Not only did Christ say it is finished, but we're told, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. 
and by one offering he hath perfected for them that are sanctified. By one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering, once offered. And this is the, the teaching of the scripture. The apostle Peter said, For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The just for the unjust, he suffered, the Apostle Peter says, once. And that is in the book of Hebrews said, uh, five times, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear a second time, without sin unto salvation. Once he offered himself. The worship of the true God is a worship in spirit and truth because we worship God only in the complete finished work of Christ Jesus. If we're to worship God in spirit and truth, it has to be a worship that's in line with the scripture and that there's one high priest. And so it says at the very beginning of uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, But now, of which things we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is sat on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in high. A summary of chapter 7, where it spoke about the priesthood, holy, harmless, undefiled, one priesthood. Now the sum of it, the summary, we have a high priest. And this is how we worship. We worship by praising God that it was one sacrifice and it was once offered. And it's on that that we rest, that it is a complete work and that it was absolutely perfect, done by the only one, the God-man, who could do it. Not added to by anybody else or offered by anybody else, offered by himself. Hebrews 1, 3. That is the glory of the priesthood of the one high priest in the New Testament, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now we have to come to the priesthood as it is seen in modern Catholic authors. And what is the priesthood in the United States and of course it's similar uh, worldwide, but it has been documented here in the United States. I'd like to show you one of the most famous books that has come out in recent times. It is Michael S. Ross, Goodbye, Good Men. I would urge you to get this book written by the Catholic author Michael Ross. A very famous book and it has disclosed life in the Catholic seminary and in the priesthood. It documents the immorality that goes on in the seminaries and it documents the great immorality there is in the priesthood. The ideals of Catholic youth who desire to become priests and to share in the identity of Christ's priesthood is such that it is taken away by the homosexuality that is rampant 
in the seminaries and in the religious orders that prepare for the priesthood. And so, chapter 4 in this book I read with trauma because page after page is documented what goes on in modern America in the seminaries. It is quite similar to another Catholic book, The Changing Face of the Priesthood by Bernard Cousins, C-O-Z-Z-E-N-S, I beg your pardon, Donald Cousins, Donald Cousins. He is the Catholic priest and rector of St. Mary's Seminary in Cleveland, Ohio, a leading Catholic seminary. And he writes in this book, for example, on page 99, he says, an NBC report on celibacy and the clergy found that anywhere from 23 to 58% of the Catholic clergy have homosexual orientation. Other studies find that approximately half of American priests and seminarians are homosexually oriented. Moreover, the percentage of gay men among religious congregations of the priests is to be believed to be even higher. Word for word from page 99 of this book by Donald Cousins. Uh, Cousins talks about, as a Catholic priest, the gay crises in the Catholic Church. Quoting from page 135 of the same book, he says the following. Gay seminarians are likely to feel at home and at ease in a seminary with, with a significant gay population. They feel they belong and their need for a meaningful, deep relationships with other gay men is easily met. And because they instinctively recognize other gay seminarians, circles of support and camaraderie are quickly formed. The straight seminarian, meanwhile, feels out of place and may interpret his inner disabilitation as a sign that he does not have a priest, a, a vocation to the priesthood. So if you are straight, you may think, well, I really don't have a vocation because I don't feel at home. That's a summary of what Cousin says on page 123. I'd urge you to buy that book, The Changing Face of the Catholic Priesthood by Donald Cousins. This is a rector of a Catholic seminary. This is not anybody exposing Catholicism. This is a Catholic priest himself exposing Catholicism. And it is remarkable to see page after page how he shows, like uh, Michael Ross, that the whole environment of seminaries is gay. And that the leading priests who lecture are gay. So it's a it, it, is, it is unbelievable and it's documented by the Catholic sources themselves. At the end of the book, the author, Cousins, 
tries to say that there is a redemption because there is, he says at the very end, concluding of the book, he says, behind the changing face of the priesthood remains the saving face of Jesus Christ. This is the last sentence in the book. Behind the changing face, because he says this is not the way it had been, you know, this homosexual, immoral priesthood, there is the saving face of Christ Jesus. He had said earlier in the book about the role of the priest. This is on page 8. He talks about saving souls, quotation, the celebration of the sacrament is the primary function of the priest. And on page 30 he says, the ritual symbolic richness of sacramental life of the church to a great extent meets the human need for the transcendent. So he still says that the need for the transcendent is met by the priest. In spite of this immorality, the need for the transcendent, uh, the transcendent or beyond what is natural, may be met in the aesthetics, the music, and the grandeur of the liturgy. You know, a person may feel in awe when they see the stained glass windows and hear the music and they sense the incense as they go into the Catholic Church. There may be a sense of the transcendent, but not a sense of truth or the gospel. That is not proclaimed. So, Cousins is right that people get the transcendent and you may have a need for the aesthetic, but that doesn't meet the needs of sinful mankind to be right before God. And what Cousins is saying is the unchangeable face of Christ is not the unchangeable face of Christ. Christ Jesus does not endorse what is make-believe or a priesthood that doesn't exist on the pages of the New Testament. And so it is really sad that the, the Catholic youth that goes in with such high ideals, and I know because I had the same high ideals myself, and I lived with men of high ideals. They go in, and then you find yourself in a climate that is highly homosexual. And it is that way oriented so that if you are straight you feel out of place so you are caught by a double hook as it were this desire to be another Christ and to be able to give absolution and baptize babies and bring Christ down on the altar this desire to have power and glory of Christ and then you are caught by the hook of the immoral environment in which you are and so that it is hard to get out because once you get involved in that type of lifestyle, talk to any former homosexual, it becomes addictive. And so you get hooked. You're hooked with the prideful idea that you can be another Christ and you're hooked by an immoral type of lifestyle and it is really sad that men whose objective it was to serve people can get so badly taken in that they reach a stage where they can't get out because that's all they know and that's all that they 
ever know, and you cannot learn a trade or an occupation in the Catholic Church that's forbidden by Catholic law as a priest. So you depend on the church for your income and support, or your, your order if you're an order man, and you become locked in. And like there's, there's no exit, there's no way out. So it's, it's really, really sad because uh, we have an unthinkable situation. Now, I use that word unthinkable because it's used in the Vatican II documents. They say the word unthinkable, and I'd like to read from Sacerdotalis Celibatus, Vatican II, document number 95. And I want to read the exact words of what they say is unthinkable. In any case, the Catholic Church, Catholic is in square brackets, is not in the original, the Church of the West cannot weaken her faithful observance of her own tradition. And it is unthinkable that for centuries she has followed a path which instead of favoring the spiritual richness of individual souls and of the people of God, has in some way compromised it, or that she has by arbitrary judicial prescriptions stifled the free expansion of the most profound realities of nature and grace. She says it's unthinkable that by her traditions she has stifled what is given to mankind by nature and by grace. And that is exactly what she has done. She has stifled the desires of youth who want to serve God into being led into a situation where they serve a system and become entrapped in that system. I had read years ago, it's still a most famous novel and you can still get copies of it. It had been a best-selling novel for many, many years of those of you of my age. Uh, the Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. A marvelous novel, but it's written about the glory of the priesthood. That's why it's called The Power and the Glory. It talks about a priest in South America whose fingers were nicotine-colored uh, and tar-colored. His teeth even were yellow from nicotine. Who was a drunkard and totally immoral but how he was loved by the people because he it was who gave new life to their children in baptism and he it was who gave them uh, absolution and confession, the power and the glory. He's talking about the glory of the priesthood even though this priest was sinful and it's a remarkable novel. If you haven't ever put your hand on it, I would recommend that you do a search for it, The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Now, it is sad that the, the priesthood, as it is in the official teaching, is the exact same as Graham Greene said. They hold that even though the priest may be sinful, it doesn't take away from the fact that he is a channel of grace. Quoting from the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1550, it says the following, the presence of Christ in the minister is not to be understood as if the latter were preserved 
from all human weaknesses, the spirit of domination, error, or even sin. The power of the Holy Spirit does not guarantee all the acts of ministers in the same way. While this guarantee extends to the sacraments, so that even the minister's sin cannot impede the fruit of grace. So not all his actions are guaranteed, but his actions in the sacraments is guaranteed, so that even if he is sinful, grace still flows through him. So the whole concept of Graham Greel's novel, that you could have an immoral priest that still can lead you to Christ because he can do the sacraments, is upheld in the New Catechism, paragraph 1550. We have, and you can find it online or you can find it in any bookstore if you ask for it by name, the book that I compiled called Far From Rome, Near to God, The Testimonies of 50 Converted Catholic Priests. You have to remember to tell the bookstore published by Banner of Truth and they will find it for you. But that book has sold remarkably, not just in English, but I think it's about 11 languages we are at the moment. Remarkable, because these are men in modern times who have come to understand that there is one priesthood and like the American in the book, Sandy Carson, who was reading Hebrews, that he saw that there was an unchangeable priesthood and he got converted in Florida. Sandy Carson, still alive, still very active as a missionary in Eastern Europe. And he got turned around when he saw that he had an office that was not mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And this is what happened to me in my own life. Uh, This is the book that I discovered late on in my priesthood. It was called The Priest and Bishop by Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown was the leading Catholic biblical scholar for the United States and he was recognized outside the United States as the leading Catholic biblical scholar. So the Catholics have their biblical scholars and Raymond Brown was one of the leading one of these. I read this as a priest, page 13 of this book. When we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's striking that while there were pagan priests and Jewish priests on the scene, no individual Christian is ever specifically identified as a priest. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks of the high priesthood of Jesus by comparing his death and entry into heaven with the actions of the Jewish high priest who went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle once a year with a blood offering for himself and for his people. Hebrews 9, 6 and 7. But... It is noteworthy that the author of Hebrews does not associate the priesthood of Jesus with the Eucharist or the Last Supper. Neither does he suggest 
that other Christians are priests in the likeness of Jesus. In fact, the once-for-all atmosphere that surrounds the priesthood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 12-14, has been offered as an explanation why there are no Christian priests in the New Testament period. End of sentence. This is a Catholic author telling you that there is no priesthood in the New Testament. You can imagine me reading this as a priest. This is what I count on. This is my office. This is what I do. And here, our best Catholic biblical scholar tells me it's not in the New Testament. And he was speaking the truth. And that is the absolute truth. And I had the courage to go back and read that. I read it in the late 70s and then I began to read it more than in the middle 80s because I was afraid to read this Catholic book because how could I give up the priesthood? I have everything. Everything is involved in me being a priest. And if there's no such office of a priesthood, well then... I'm not only out of work, but I don't have any authority. I don't, don't have anything. You know what I mean? Talk about being found naked. You know what I mean? You don't have any authority. Where is your office? It doesn't exist in the pages of the New Testament. And that's the reality. And that's where the Catholic Church is centered around the priesthood. And the priesthood doesn't exist. And so if you are a Catholic listening, I really urge you to to look at your Catholic Bible as Raymond Brown did. But go beyond what Raymond Brown sought intellectually, but he remained a Catholic priest and a Catholic to the day he died. But go beyond it and say, if Christ, under the Holy Spirit's writing of the New Testament, gave us the fact that there is one priesthood, and that there was a sacrifice once offered, how can I accept anything else? And how can I continue to go where there is a priest every Sunday turning to me and saying, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And, and I say, like all other, may the Lord, like all other Catholics at the Mass, may the Lord accept the sacrifice from your hand for the praise and glory of his name for um, our good and the good of all the church. How can I be offering sacrifice if there's one sacrifice? And who is this up here as a priest when there's no priesthood? So, ask God to open your eyes to see that there is one high priest and he has done a work that is once done and it is, it is finished and it is gloriously finished. It is the, the uh, emphatic teaching of scripture that we have one priest. The Catholic Church talks about the priest and getting married. And it says in their canon law, 1394, that if a priest gets married, he is to be dismissed 
because of giving scandal. The exact words of the official modern Catholic law is, quotation, a cleric who attempts marriage, even if only civilly, incurs a late sentence suspension if he does not repent having been warned and continues to give scandal he can be punished gradually by deprivations even by dismissal from the clerical state so if a priest does what is biblical it's better to marry than to burn you know so he gets married he commits scandal and he can be dismissed it is really sad where they have not dismissed men who are into sexual abuse of all different kinds, that they will dismiss a man who gets married, who does what is biblical, and call it a scandal. What does the Word of God say that marriage is honorable? And the bed undefiled. So it's, it's again a total contrast between what is said in the pages of Scripture and what is said in the Catholic Church. And so I ask you, who is your priest? Who do you look to? If you're looking to a man who dresses up with a dress, you know, with a chasuble over, you know, a long dress, and you're looking to him to give you grace. How can you ever expect it since his office is not on the pages of Scripture? How can you expect anything for somebody who has a priesthood whose priesthood does not exist? So who is your priest? Who do you look to? Who is the one that you look to? The scripture says, looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. The, the, the one who is perfect. When you look to him and cry out to him for his grace, he empowers you with the gift of faith in the power of the love of the Father that you would trust him and him alone. And when you trust him, the one priest, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and who has suffered for the unjust, you know salvation in that one priest. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You become accepted in the beloved. So this is a straight message that... There is one priest and he can be found of you and he can be known of you and he it is who takes away the difficulties. Would to God that some of these priests who have been caught in immorality could get out of their immorality and out of their servitude by looking unto Christ. He saves all sinners, even those who have sinned drastically. And even those same priests who have been accused, and some of whom are in prison, if they look unto Christ, he can save them utterly. This is a message for all and all sinners. 
because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even the very men who have been a scandal to their own Catholic Church, if they look to Christ, they can be saved and renounce their priesthood as so many others have right across the world and come to the one priesthood and glory that they have a priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled. So praise to his name and may this priest be your priest now and all the days of your life. And we praise him, the eternal one priest. Amen and amen. Glory and praise, honor and worship to his name. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.